The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week, we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, will life ever return to normal? Is the government pandering to statue protesters? And what's Prince Harry's new job? First up, Boris Johnson promised that coronavirus restrictions would end on June the 21st, but will they be replaced by a biosecurity state? Kate Andrews writes our cover story this week, Roadmap to Nowhere, and she joins me now together with Matthew Paris, who argues in his column that vaccine passports will give us our freedom back. Kate, in your cover piece this week, you wonder where Boris's roadmap is taking us. You say that a few weeks ago it seemed very clear restrictions would end on the 21st of June, but you say it's now changed. What seems to have changed? So the roadmap itself hasn't seen much change. The Prime Minister said that pub gardens are opening and non-essential retail is opening on the 12th of April. No reason at the moment to think that his other dates, the 17th of May, the 21st of June, may not go ahead. But the fine print on the roadmap is that the really difficult decisions have been left for these separate reviews around social distancing, international travel, returning to work, and possible vaccine passports. And we got the first teaser update this week. And it looks like well, we might be liberated in some ways, we are going to be more heavily restricted in other ways. After promising for months that vaccine passports were off the cards, they are very seriously considering them, certainly for mass events, certainly for travel, but even possibly for going to the pub, they won't rule it out. On social distancing, this teaser report says that we simply don't know when we might be able to lift restrictions and when that might be possible. We know some scientists are saying that they need to be around for a long time. Now, these are crucial things for getting our life back to normal. It's all good and well to say nightclubs are open, but if you're social distancing at them, it's not the nightclub that you once knew. So I think that this roadmap has become a bit of a guise for the more difficult decisions that really may not mean freedom. And the question is, when you have, for what we know to be at the moment, hugely successful vaccines, a great rollout, and still capacity for mass testing, what more is it going to take to get those freedoms back is the question they don't want to answer. Matthew, you write about vaccine passports in your column this week, and and you, you essentially set out what you see as the libertarian case for vaccine passports. Can you explain how you see them? Yes, um, vaccine passports will not liberate everybody, uh, but they will liberate more people than would be liberated if we didn't have vaccine passports. I, I simply can't see how saying that nobody must go to a, a pub or a football match or an opera until everybody can, uh, is is a libertarian point of view. Uh, the libertarian would say those people able to go, able and willing to go, should should go. I, I'm sometimes asked to justify the libertarian case for vaccine passports, but the truth is that I can't understand how anybody could think that it was illiberal uh, to make conditions upon people before they, they, they mingled with others or before they did jobs where, where they, they might put others at risk. We've had driving licences for a, a very long time. 
and uh, I don't see why why we we shouldn't have going into pubs licenses if without the vaccine we would be endangering others. What do you make of the argument that vaccine passports were created to tier society between the people who have been vaccinated and the people who haven't? Well, driving licenses create a two-tier society between those people who, who have taken the test and passed it and those those who haven't. Yes, of course they discriminate. Uh, I'm not in, against discrimination as, as long as it's not discrimination on, on completely biased or bogus grounds. Uh, we're not discriminating people on against people on, on basis of race or colour or, or religion. Um, anybody, almost anybody, who wants to get vaccinated can. Um, or that will be the case late, late, later this summer. And when we reach that point, I think we are entitled to discriminate in favour of those who have. Kate, what do you make of that argument? So I think context matters a lot here. I can see a world where the most ardent libertarian would agree to some kind of vaccine passport if we didn't have any working vaccines. If the only way to tackle this virus um, was essentially mass surveillance and you had to crack down on it when you saw cases coming up. But that that isn't the case. We're talking about bringing in what is essentially a biosecurity card. It's going to have health records attached to it and you're going to be requested to show those to private landlords, establishments, and the rest of it. We're talking about bringing this in potentially months after everybody has been offered their first jab. We're talking about bringing it into a society that we were told was going to go back to normal when we had something like the vaccine. So I think that context matters a lot. I think you can, of course, make the utilitarian argument that you want to have as much freedom as possible, and if this is the way to do it, so be it. But I suppose I don't accept that premise. These goalposts keep moving, and it seems more like an opportunity for the state to bring this in than it does that something that's going to be desperately needed or even workable when they do it. And let's remember, this isn't private businesses asking if they can do this. This is the government saying that we are going to mandate, potentially, they're considering asking businesses to mandate that they check these passports, whether or not the private landowner landowner wants to or not. And the last thing I'd say is I, I fear that they will discriminate based on some protected characteristics. If we look at who is taking up the job right now, You could certainly see a case here in the UK where those who are white are predominantly in establishments or more so than they would have been before because we know that certain ethnic minorities aren't taking up the vaccine as much. I do not think the response to that is to keep them out of establishments. You know, I I think we should certainly be encouraging everybody to take up the vaccine, but it might not be your intended consequence, but it could be the actual consequence. And that's a society I'm, I'm very uncomfortable living in. I think you're on stronger ground on your second argument, uh, the, the, the accumulation of information, data about people, which can then be carried around, so to speak, in um, either digitally or in a plastic card in some way. I, I think you're on stronger ground there than you are on the principled argument for letting people for whom it's safe to go into a crowded venue go into the crowded venue. This is, this could be, I, I think you're right, could be the thin end of the wedge. Uh, if uh, your vaccine status can be recorded and um, you can be required to demonstrate it. Why not other? Why not other things too? And I think we are moving into a world in which in insurance companies will want to know how fast we drive and be able to find out how fast we drive, um, in, in which uh, health records are going to be checked before you do this, that or, or the other. I'm afraid that it's basically that we will always control 
when we can, so far as we can, and as we are becoming enabled through the digital world uh, to, to, uh, to, to check on people, to keep records, and, and, and easily to, uh, to, to, to carry the records around. You won't have to carry a whole NHS book or anything like that. As we're unable to do it, uh, we will, and I don't like that world we're moving into, but I don't think there's anything we can do to stop it. Well, I think we can start by trying to resist a, a government that has been telling us for months that it would never consider doing such a thing because it was discriminatory, because it was un-British, because we are not a paper-carrying country, according to Matt Hancock, uh, and then turns around and announces that it plans to do so. In that context, I think it's very difficult to look at that situation and think that the government has been responsible in its handling of this, but also not to question the motives. I mean, you have a government that wants to bring this in months after supposedly we all have the jab. They're now acting as if it is the only solution, and yet we know that we have all of these other solutions. And so one really has to ask why they would feel so compelled to bring it in. And I think the easy answer is that when you have a state of national emergency, as we do, that is when the state can flex its muscles. It's when the state can get bigger. And I think people who have an inclination towards classical liberalism, on the left and the right, regardless of what else they believe in, if you if you believe that there has to be a healthy separation between the state and the individual, that liberty is not simply what the state decides is going to give you that day, but a fundamental right, then you have to, especially in these situations, say, no, this is not the context in which we should be considering this. You know, in a completely separate context, if individuals want to have more of their data on their phone, I'm not opposed to that. We already we already have that in so many ways. You know, your, your health app on your phone, people are happy with that in principle, but that's very different than the government mandating that you have that and also that you show that private information to access fundamental parts of life. I think going to the pub, having a meal out, it's it's not some special treat. It's a it's a fundamental part of life and being sociable. If you want to take out life insurance, you have to demonstrate the state of your health to the insurance company. They will be interested in whether you have cancer, for instance. They'll be interested in the condition of your heart and all those those things. All the digitalization of these things will do is make it very much easier. Uh, both for people to demand proof of this, that or the other, and for people to show proof of this, that or the other. It will be as, as easy as anything, and therefore it will come. I think you make a mistake if you you posit some sort of conspiracy by wicked politicians to control us for the sake of control. Each of the little steps, and it will be, as you say, step by step, each of the little steps will seem to, both to politicians and probably to the public as perfectly sensible in the circumstances. So the, the conspiracy will be in a sort of cloud of accumulation rather than the mind of an individual power-hungry politician. Oh, of course. I would never give them so much credit as to think that they could come up with such a conspiracy and manipulate us all in such ways. After, at the end of the day, that the state is not all that effective. Uh, what I fear more than anything is is their good intentions sometimes. As you say, they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, this is only for vaccines. We'll have a sunset clause. It won't be for long. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do in a very difficult situation. Well, what happens when situations change? What happens when something else a bit frightening comes along and we have this framework? We don't know who'd be in charge. We don't know what government we'd have and we don't know what their inclinations would be. You cannot trust the current set of politicians and their thinking to be transplanted on what we might do with such a powerful apparatus in the future, which is why I think if you are bringing it in in the state of a national emergency and weirdly when 
when that national emergency is supposed to be tailing off, coming to an end, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines. You really have to question if that's a smart or good thing to do. I don't think there's big a big conspiracy brewing in Whitehall. I think they think, like every politician does, well, I'm better than the rest. Why don't we? None of them are. <laughs> Instead of arguing whether this is happening or even whether it should, we ought to look at whether there's the remotest chance of persuading the British public uh, that um, so far and no further. I don't think there is the remotest chance. The British public would leap at identity cards tomorrow um, if, if the idea were proposed. They would see the logic of each small step. And these larger ideas, which I agree with you, are important about where we're going, what the ultimate destination might be. I just don't see how you are going to persuade people to get get upset about that sort of thing. Well, I agree with you. The public opinion on in the polling anyway already suggests that there is a lot of support for vaccine passports. I would question whether or not what they imagine as normal and what they imagine politicians will bring in is exactly the same as what they might get. But you're right. At the moment, there is a lot of support. The crux of liberty and classic, classical liberalism is that you are not always catering to the majority, to the populist to everybody. You are thinking about the individual. Who might be left out? Why are they being left out? Is it fair that they're being left out? Have we taken things a bit too far? What is the prospect for liberty in the future if we take these actions now? And this is a government that has made a lot of its decision based off polling. And um, this might be the ultimate example of the ways in which that can actually be a huge mistake if you don't stand up for those classically liberal principles. Um, And, you know, I'll emphasize it again, not to sound like a broken record, especially once we have vaccines on board. One of my biggest concerns is that now we're now getting weekly reminders from the prime minister and his officials that vaccines aren't 100% effective. You know, they're talking down their own jabs because they want to bring in new rules and regulations down the line. This is absolutely absurd. Nobody thought we'd have a foolproof vaccine ever. Uh, The fact that at the moment, these vaccines appear to be far more effective than most people dream they would be is is a huge achievement. It's, It's frankly a miracle. Look at what they're having to do and having to say to justify the rules they want to bring in. If that doesn't add up, and if the policy itself is questionable when it's coming in and under the context, I think it's probably something we should reject. Thank you, Kate and Matthew. Next, after the Edward Colston statue in Bristol was toppled last summer, the government has come up with a new policy which it thinks will stop further controversy, retain and explain. In this week's issue, Alexander Pelling-Bruce says the plan is a misguided capitulation. He joins me now with Duncan Wilson, the CEO of Historic England, who are in charge of preserving Britain's historical monuments and buildings. Alexander, in this week's magazine, you write about the government's plan to educate people about controversial statues. And you talk about this idea of retain and explain. Can you tell listeners what that idea is? Yes, uh, Retain and Explain is the government's approach to contested heritage. It was originally developed by Historic England, I believe, in 2018. The idea is when a statue or some artefact becomes contested, and we all know what the context is, it's to do with Britain's imperial past, instead of succumbing to the, uh, the will of the activists, the statue or artefact should be retained, and some sort of fuller contextualization should be added to it. And so would this be added as a plaque at the bottom? Well, normally it would be a plaque, a plaque at the bottom of a statue, but Historic England themselves say, you know, this could be, you, you could have sort of uh, artistic 
installations or you could perhaps have audio accessible by QR codes and that, and that sort of thing. So Laurie Magnus has said uh, has explained this on on various platforms. The question really is about oversight. And the problem I have with this policy, I think it's setting a trap because without oversight and without sort of proper robust academic process, it allows for manipulation by bad actors who are essentially trying to produce sentiment, the sentiment that this figure is bad or Britain is bad, rather than actually producing scholarship that will educate people. That's not the intention in most of these cases. Duncan, you are the CEO of Historic England, which is the body in charge of preserving Britain's historic buildings and monuments. Can you explain how you see the retain and explain policy? Yes. The contextualisation of statues and memorials is, has been said, is the objective. We don't want to be clumsy about the way that's done. It isn't always a plaque on the side of a plinth. It can use digital material which is access easily accessible it can be through counter memorials if people want to make a point and that's the the local democratic decision they can they can put up another statue which makes the point near to the contested statue there are a lot of different ways there can be events and as i say information can be conveyed by a variety of means but i think it's that contextualization which we feel is the counterpoint to keeping the contested memorial or statue there. And, and when you're deciding to explain a statue, how do you go about deciding who is going to write that explanation? Well, the primary responsibility is with the person who owns the statue or m- memorial, and we, we seem to forget that. I think we, as Historic England, can be involved with DCMS and others in producing guidance about how to do it properly and well, and I do take the point that it is open to statements of view that might not be objective or or might be politically um, partisan. But then actually quite a lot of the statements, I mean, the, the, the plaque on the side of the Colston statue is pretty partisan in, in another direction, put up in 1895. So I think we have to try to be as calm and objective as possible, and that is our role as Historic England. But Ultimately, there has to be a role for local democracy in the process too. And indeed, the owner of the statue, which could be a, an institution or an individual or a local authority. And I, I think there's, it's important that, that any changes like this are properly consulted on as well. Alexander, isn't the point with statues that when a statue is erected, it's not an objective decision? And so therefore, is it understandable that people want a bit more explanation about the background of that statue? It depends what they're trying to explain and why. Duncan Wilson has has explained the policy, but we're talking about this things, these things in an abstract way. So they might sound rather pleasant and retain and explain has a, you know, a nice rhyme to it. But the question is, what is the motivation here? Why should we accept the premise that something needs to be explained? Because that's not what the purpose of a statue is. What do you see the purpose of a statue as being? The purpose of a statue is to celebrate the figure depicted in relation to some set of public achievements. It's not a testament of character or unblemished character, and it's not to sort of expose some sort of moral flaw. So this policy completely is a radical transformation of what statues should be. And I don't think the views of the public are being taken into account here. In many cases, 
for example, the, 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 the example that I write about in, in the article, the Dundas statue, the Melville Monument in Edinburgh, there was no rigorous consultation carried out whatsoever. And in the example I mentioned in the article where there was rigorous consultation, 90% of the people who bothered to reply in Leeds did not want any change whatsoever. So what I'm saying is I think Historic England and the government are adopting a policy that seems like a compromise when the case for compromising hasn't been made. It's not clear how, you know, that there is a sort of groundswell of people who really do believe that, you know, these statues need explaining. Duncan, do you get the impression that there's huge public support for retain and explain? I think there are different views. I mean, our our own um, YouGov polling in October with nearly 1,800 adults shows that 50% said that statues that have become contested should remain but new information should be added about the personal subject they depict, as opposed to 24% who said they thought there should be no change. So I, I don't think the figures one way or another are conclusive, but I think it is a question about how it's done. We're not about ramming information down people's throats, but we are about making it available to people who are curious. The existing plaque on the Colston statue says... Erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city, AD 1895. I think a lot of people would agree that the fact that he got most of his wealth from the slave trade is not reflected in that description and is something that people now pay a lot of attention to and didn't then. And I think that can be done in an, not in an inflammatory way, but simply reflecting that. Alexander, what do you think should have been the response to the Coulston statue? Do you think it should have been kept up with a plaque explaining or nothing there? OK, well, there's a number of things about the Coulston statue. So there's the question of what should have happened before it was torn down and then what should have happened after it was torn down. So after it was torn down, I think what should have happened in the first instance is that it should have gone back up. Even if that was for a day or a week or an hour, it should have gone back on that plinth because it was an act of criminal damage. And by not restoring it to its plinth, even for a very short amount of time, that essentially shows that we don't live by the rule of law in that context. What should have happened before, or had the statue not been torn down, I suppose is a question of uh, you know, a proper consultation process. The council, of course, is the custodian of that, of that statue. So it needs to establish that there is a cause for change, that people really want some sort of change. Ultimately, I don't think there's ever really a good reason for a statue to be removed. It's not only the wishes of the present generation who, be, who should be considered. It is also the, the wishes of the generations past and the people who erected that statue in good faith. Should, that should be taken into account. And, of course, future generations as well. Once you remove something from the public sphere, you miss an opportunity to, uh, you know, for, for education. It is a piece of history in itself. And Duncan, just finally, one of the points that Alexander makes is that people are becoming increasingly worried of being accused of defending the indefensible, namely slavery or racism. Do you think that's something that is guiding a lot of the discussion on all of this? As far as we're concerned, we are not judgmental about this. It's perfectly okay for people to be judgmental about it. The slave trade was horrific. But we are simply trying to make sure this is done on a factual basis. Some of the stories about 
people who are depicted in public statues are misguided because of you know when the research is done it turns out they weren't very seriously connected with the slave trade or only marginally so in other cases much more so and that's the information i think we need to start from irrespective of how we then choose to use it and that's what i i see as an important role for us and just responding to what alexander just said he's absolutely stated the case for retain on which we are completely aligned we think if you take statues and memorials away however controversial the story disappears they go into a basement whether it's a museum or wherever and that it strikes me does no service to either side of the argument i've passed by those three victorian generals in trafalgar square hundreds of times without even really paying much attention to them i will now pay attention to them and i'm interested in their stories and that i think is a good thing so i don't think we're massively disagreeing about this no, I don't think we are disagreeing, and I and 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 I entirely agree that your intentions are good, and that you say that you don't. We're not about sort of ramming down, you know, opinions, you know, down people's throats. But you may not be, but the people who are going to be in control of this process might be, and that's the problem here. The other thing is, why is there such an intense focus on the slave trade or Britain's imperial past? Is that the only context? that these statues or artefacts can be explained. And if you only do it in that context, so you're not distorting the picture of the individual. I'll give you an example. The British Museum recently did this with Hans Sloan, where they decided to, to move his bus and then they said that they needed to explain him in the exploitative context. But that's not the only context that one could, ex- you know, could explain him. He was, he was a collector, he was a biologist... He was engaged in, in taxonomy. He contributed to the body of science in quite a profound way. So why only choose to explain him in a very narrow frame? That's the problem here. Well, disappointingly, I'm going to agree with you again. It is absolutely <laughs> important to us that the full contextualization of historic figures appears. Now, it is the case that in some cases that the connection with the slave trade is the untold bit of the story, but we absolutely don't want it to dominate the interpretation of the figure. Gladstone, for example, who, you know, his father was more intimately connected with the trade than Gladstone, but there are definite differences of view about the extent to which Gladstone can be taken to have endorsed it or not. And it's important that nuanced position appears, because otherwise, you know, we'll be just committing the same sins as has been committed in the past in in giving a very partial view of a figure. So, context and proportion is really important in this and I see that as a very important role for us but not as entirely supplanting the role of whoever owns the statue and the local planning authority and indeed obviously the Secretary of State for MHCLG has said he will call in applications to remove statues so there's a role for government there too. We should not be afraid to explain anything the question is is the statue or this artefact, the best place to do that. And I don't think a statue has enough... If, if it's going to be a plaque, you just simply don't have enough space. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that, which is why I think digital explanation is a really important part. Obviously, that can't reach everyone, but you can give a much fuller explanation. And, you know, archives and list descriptions and all the other ways of 
of describing historic things and it's important that they are properly researched and give a fair and balanced account. And you can't do that on a plaque necessarily. It depends on the context. Thank you, Alexander and Duncan. And finally, Prince Harry recently announced he is joining the Californian wellbeing company Better Up as its chief impact officer. In this week's magazine, Dominic Green says joining the shoddily regulated industry will cause further embarrassment to the royal family. To explain, Dominic joins me now alongside Sam Leith, the Spectator's literary editor. Dom, in this week's magazine, you write about Prince Harry's new job in America. Can you tell listeners a bit about it? Well, I'm delighted to report, Laura, that he has found something useful to do, apart from sweeping the leaves off the surface of the pool. Uh, In fact, he's found quite a lot to do, hasn't he? He's taken on all kinds of jobs. And the latest one is as the, the mental health advisor to a hotly tipped Californian startup called BetterUp. What BetterUp does is gather information on your employees and then advise people how to be more productive workers. How it works is essentially what used to be called therapy but is now called coaching. You can't be forced to do it, but employers are finding it very useful. The idea is you you have a session with someone who tells you how to uh, let go of the personal hang-ups which are stopping you from working so well. The whole thing, to me, sounds like a, a sinister spin on Brave New World. And indeed, BetterUp's selling point is that in the old days, this kind of coaching was only done for people at the top of a business, while through the wonder of computing, they can snoop about in the lives of everybody in the organization and hassle every single person to be a more productive worker. Uh, And indeed, one of the groups of people that they say their product can apply to is call center workers. And I'm sure Harry will be thinking of them as he reclines on the sun lounger and they learn to be more empathetic with the callers. Sam, you've, you've also written about Prince Harry's corporate conversion and particularly the statement announcing his new position. Can you let us know what you understood from that statement? Well, I understood very little. I mean, uh, what struck me was that when the statement was issued, it didn't sound like anything any human being would ordinarily say. And the laws of slander prevent me from saying with any certainty that Harry didn't write it and it wasn't exactly the way that he'd express himself. But it was absolutely stuffed with this sort of, you know, dead corporate PR cliche. It was all, it was all about solution-oriented approaches and, you know, advocacy voices and stakeholder engagement, which isn't the way ordinary people speak. And it may be that Harry has somehow absorbed all this. Dom has done the research deeply into what this company actually does and promises and the, you know, genealogy of its intellectual history. I took a much more kind of um, finger to the wind thing, which was just if it sounds like bullshit, it's probably bullshit. What was sad and sort of slightly poignant about this was that Prince Harry is, you know, he's made this huge thing of the need to break away from a big institution which exploits his image, which asks him to parrot a set of you know, stale formal rituals in order to make this new life in California. And it seems to be sort of instantly he's plopped naively, I think, because he's, you know, how is he expected to be a worldly sort of person into doing exactly the same thing on the other side of the pond in a kind of corporate interest, because he's finding himself parroting or signing off on statements that aren't originary, authentic, you know, having the feel of his own voice, his own language, his own thing. He's, you know, he's been signed up for the mascot for this vast sort of corporate juggernaut of bollocks, really. 
Oh, that that's sort of sad because it's a bit out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? I mean, and also, I mean, without being too rude about him, he's not the sharpest knife in the box, is he? And he has himself been been quite candid about his own uh, struggles with mental health. So how exactly he, he's going to advise a company on other people's mental health is is, is uh, beyond me. You know, this whole ethos of um, coaching comes out of uh, this, what was originally a hippie thing called the, the human potential movement. And, and Sam, you know about this because I know you've maximized your human potential. I have. But Harry, of course, is is maximizing another kind of human potential which is the one you're referring to which is the seeds of, of a sort of greek tragedy <laughs> script where you know he goes all the way to the other side of the world to confront the very nightmare that he was escaping and in fact the celebrity that Meghan markle is cultivating in the u.s is on a scale akin to that that princess diana cultivated you know don't know about the sharpness of the tool or otherwise but he starts out you know, I mean, naturally, he's he's existed for a long time in this kind of structured world of royalty. And when he's sort of suddenly on the out, you know, I suspect he's been rather institutionalised. There's no, you know, people have done things for him. People have shaped the way he, he moves through the world. And I think he sort of reminds me a bit of sort of Frodo sort of stumbling into Mordor, you know, with this sort of ring in his pocket. He has this enormously valuable property which he doesn't really understand, which is his own celebrity, his own royal genealogy, the fact that he's broken free from the royal family. So he suddenly kind of enters this exciting, you know, narrative which has swept everybody up. And he has this huge property, but he is, of course, deeply unworldly about how to use it and what it means and who it's going to attract and how to judge those people as they come along. So, it's, you know, and then he goes to California, they're going to eat him the hell alive. <laughs> I, th I think you're right. And his experience of having his privacy violated is, of course, totally different to the experience of somebody who's on the lower echelons of a corporation and as Better Up actually offers to do, uh, sends people off for diversity and equity training because something has shown up in the algorithm that says you're having negative thoughts about the race of your fellow workers, which is the kind of implications that are carried in this sort of uh, information gathering and, and this sort of, of company. I don't think he has the faintest idea about that, even though, of course, he is one of the very few members of the royal family to have you know, made racist acts or statements. Uh, we haven't forgotten his costume. So, no, I don't think he understands really what the stakes are at all. And, and, you know, he is going to be chewed up and spat out. And, and in a way, it might be better for him if he was spat out sooner, because I, I don't think he's, he's in over his depth, as they probably say in his swimming pool. Well, they always say that you need to hit rock bottom early if you have to have a hope of a well-grounded recovery. To be generous to Harry, I mean, people, he may not be the sharpest tool, but people say he's often quite likeable and, and he used to be very popular. I mean, do you think he can bring that element to this company and perhaps offer a kind of slightly more human side to what seems like a very weird corporate company? Well, the problem is, I don't. In, in American professional life, there's not much room for the the, uh, the sort of Prince Hal aspect, which I much preferred him as. I much preferred him as, as a badly behaved yob than than this, you know, pompous lecturing Harry. The difficulty is, of course, Prince Hal. You know, he becomes uh, the king, and that's not likely to happen. So um, it's not really possible for him to use his charm, which he absolutely has. And I think he has a genuine, you know, um, emotional presence or had one anyway when, when he was working in his previous job. But I don't really see an outlet for that in the US at all. It, it's, it's quite scripted and buttoned up in public life, even though, despite Donald Trump. 
And Sam, just finally, do you think a lot of the language that's being used here with the sort of corporate mental well-being discussion, do you think Megan is more comfortable using that language? Well, I guess she's she's sort of spent more time knocking around the fountainhead of that kind of language. I mean, she's, you know, she's pretty invested in the wellness industry and, you know, the sort of Californian way of life. You know, she came out of out of Hollywood and and the American television and movie industries. So, yeah, I guess she'll be more familiar with the language. I mean, it's more kind of the sense, I think, I, mean, I, I, I don't really hold with this idea that, A, you know, we have to paint Megan as the Wicked Witch, um, who somehow kind of coerce you into all this. I think it's, a, you know, there are two people who are probably a little bit out of their depths. And, you know, they're put in a position where they are, as I say, in possession of this extraordinarily sort of valuable, you know, they are a very valuable property. But they've got the tragedy is that both of them believe earnestly and commendably that what they want to do is make their lives important because of what they do rather than because of who they are. And I think they are finding it very hard to disentangle those two things or the realisation that actually what people want them for is for who they are rather than for any skills or abilities that they have independent of their selfness. They need coaching, is what you're saying. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're the one to do it as well. I think you've, you've got it there. Well, I'm available. You know, they have my number. <laughs> Sam and Dom, thank you very much. And that's everything for this episode. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, if you pick up the magazine, you can read everything that we've talked about. Plus, there's lots more. We've got a notebook from LA written by Joan Collins. Angel Pfeiffer is writing from Jerusalem on why the vaccine passports are now redundant there. And Andrew Motion reviews a Bob Dylan biography by Clinton Halen. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin.